Well, I'm also very happy to introduce to you Stephen Shetterly, who is going to be speaking to us tonight. He is currently on staff at the Bellingham Covenant Church as the Director of Local and Global Outreach. And he has a BA in Spanish and in political science, as well as a master's in TESOL, teaching English as a second or other language. And um, he's currently working on his MDiv at Regent and while he's house painting on the side. <laughs> so this busy dad has uh, most recently returned from a mission trip to Sweden with the, with the church. And he and Joelle have served as English teachers too in Vietnam. So we welcome you, Stephen, back again. Join us. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Uh, there we go. I'll slide that in there. Yeah, thank you, Anne, uh, for the wonderful introduction. A little bit more about myself by way of introduction, for those of you who don't know me. Um, just kind of how I got connected with this whole group of people. Uh, was roommates uh, back long, long ago at Western with two guys by the name of Nathaniel Wilson and Ryan Kennedy. Um, and then following college, I was just sort of, you know, drifting around as people often do and like, what is this life thing? And um, they invited me to this place, Bellingham Covenant Church, which they had been a part of. Uh, it sounded a little bit like a cult to me, but I decided I would give it a shot. Turned out it was not a cult. And so I stuck around and, um, and it was great. Lots of friends. Patrick and Adelaide were there, you know, the Ling Blooms, all, all of these folks. And then Joelle and I left and went to Vietnam for six and a half years, taught English over there, did ministry over there. And when we came back, it was as though the rapture had happened, but it was a rapture where only like people of my age from my church had left, had gone. <laughs> and so we were left bereft with no friends at BCC. And so... I was packing my bags to come over to Lettered Streets, and they said, we'll hire you. We'll just, just stay here at BCC, please. And so, so it worked, uh, and I've been there ever since. They pay me to attend BCC. No. Um, that is not true. I, I love both of these communities a lot. Um, and uh, Lettered Streets, as you all know, is planted as a missional community, and y'all have done fantastic at that. And I look at the things that Lettered Streets has, has done, and I'm, I'm just thrilled, also a little bit jealous sometimes, like, oh, they did that. Um, such a good idea. So for me to come here, I have a, a message on mission uh, for you this evening, and it feels a little bit like telling the Wilson family how to play music or something like that. There's not a whole lot I can add to the conversation, but be that as it may, um, this is what I've got for you tonight. So there was a, uh, an Irish poet by the name of William Butler Yeats in the years following World War I. Uh, he wrote this simple line in one of his poems, things fall apart, the center cannot hold. And at that time in history, the world really did seem to be falling apart. It seemed as if it had fallen apart. And then about a century later, in 2016, 
right in the middle of the battle against ISIS and a refugee crisis and political upheaval like the Brexit referendum, this line was quoted again and again in the media and elsewhere. Um, and I think if we're honest, those words could probably apply equally to our lives sometimes. You know, toys break, the car needs to go to the shop again, relationships get strained, our bodies break down and don't work like they used to. Things do fall apart all the time. It's a fact of existence on this planet. And yet sometimes they don't. Sometimes things hang together in spite of everything. In August 1914, weeks after the start of World War I, a ship that was called the Endurance left its harbor in Plymouth, England and headed south. And on board was a crew that was seeking to make the first land crossing of Antarctica. Uh, so the South Pole had already been reached. They were wondering, what other crazy things can we do in these really inhospitable places? Let's actually cross the entire continent of Antarctica. So they were going to get dropped off on one side, cross through the South Pole, and get picked up on the far side. Simple enough. But the endurance never reached Antarctica. Through the short Antarctic summer, it tried time and again to get close enough to the coastline to drop off the people and all of their gear, but every time they were turned back by ice. And then the crew awoke one morning to find their ship completely surrounded by pack ice, frozen in place. Not to worry, those things happen sometimes. They just wait for the ice to break up and be able to sail out. They had plenty of supplies, enough to last the whole winter if need be, and so they waited. And the ice didn't break up, and weeks passed, and then months. They stayed on board the ship through the entire Antarctic winter, and when spring came, the ice started to shift and to torque, and over the course of about a month, they watched helplessly as their ship was mangled and ground to pieces and swallowed by the ice. So the crew was left with three lifeboats and a couple of dog sled teams standing on a floating mass of quickly melting pack ice hundreds of miles from the Antarctic coastline. Radio wasn't really a thing at this point, uh, certainly not GPS or satellite phones. So the technical term for this is being up a creek without a paddle. Things fall apart. And the leader of this expedition was a man by the name of Ernest Shackleton. And he wasn't willing to sit by and to watch himself and his crew follow his ship to the bottom of the sea. And so Shackleton and his men, 28 of them in all, started off across the ice, trying to reach land, dragging these lifeboats along with them. And the whole time, the ice was shifting and melting, and at various points, they had to climb into the boats and navigate their way through these constantly changing channels of open sea. And eventually, they reached this tiny little speck of frozen rock called Elephant Island, and they set up camp. There was zero chance that anyone would find them there. And so eventually, Shackleton picked five crew members, and he set off in one of the lifeboats across the Southern Ocean, trying to reach a whaling station on the island of South Georgia where they could get help. Problem was, South Georgia was 800 miles away across the most storm-wracked bit of ocean on the entire planet, and winter was coming fast. So over the course of three weeks, in these outrageously stormy seas, with only a few brief chances to take sightings of the stars to figure out where on Earth they were, 
They got blown across the Southern Ocean and they miraculously beached on South Georgia Island on the opposite side of a mountain range from where they needed to be. And so, with the lifeboat no longer seaworthy, two members of his crew so weak that they couldn't continue, Shackleton and his three, of, three of his crew traveled for 36 hours straight up and over this interior mountain range of the island, across glacier fields and down into this whaling station on the other side of South Georgia, surprising the living heck out of a bunch of Norwegian whalers who were there. And wasting no time, Shackleton set out to find his crew. And over the course of the next four months, he tried three different times with three different ships to reach Elephant Island, where he'd left them. When he finally arrived, he found every last one of his crew was alive. All of them. After spending two winters in Antarctica, sometimes things don't fall apart. Sometimes the center holds. Now, Shackleton was obviously a tremendous leader. He was tremendous and very, very lucky. In spite of all the odds, he held his crew together and he brought life out of the midst of certain death. The horrible irony of this story, though, is that while Shackleton and his men were busy not dying, thousands and thousands of their countrymen were being sent off to the killing fields of Europe in World War I. Things were falling apart in a major way back in the civilized world. It's probably safer for his crew, in fact, to be stranded on Elephant Island than to be drafted into the British Army in those days. Looking at history, I think that we can say that things like World War I are actually the norm for this broken world. And the Shackletons of this life are few and far between. But this idea of holding it all together, of one person keeping it all from kind of slipping off into chaos, it's central to the text that we're looking at today and on a much, much bigger scale than Shackleton's expedition was, on a much bigger scale even than a world war. The passage in Colossians that Anne read just a minute ago uh, is something that's become central to the way that I see Jesus and God's mission in this world and our role as God's people in that mission. It's a passage that looks the difficulties and the tragedies and the brokenness of this world just square in the eye, and it doesn't try to sugarcoat them or explain them away or hide from them, but it deals with them head on. It's a passage that expands, I think maybe even explodes our vision of what the mission of the church could be and should be. There's so much in these few verses, we could probably spend a lifetime just picking it all apart and going through it, but I wanted to highlight just a couple of parts today. I think that we'll find that this is a passage that actually reveals the heart of God. And in doing that, it shows us what mission really is. So at the outset, uh, let me just explain that the letter to the Colossians is written by the Apostle Paul. And he was not just writing them a letter to sort of offer your greetings and some you know, warm religious sorts of thoughts. But he was writing to correct some dangerous heresy that was happening in the church. People were getting the wrong idea about God was beginning to twist the way that they saw themselves, the way that uh, they worshiped. And Paul wanted the Colossians and us to know just who Jesus really is. So in Colossians chapter one, verse 15, it says, the first thing that we see is that Christ is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all of creation. 
What does exactly, you know, this phrase, the image of the invisible God actually mean? It seems like a paradox right from the get-go. How can you have an, an image of something that's invisible, right? Well, the word for image in Greek is icon, which we are all very familiar with. Uh, many of us spend our lives staring at computer screens, right? It's that little picture that you double-click to make the computer do the things that you want it to. But icons are more than just a cute picture of something. Actually, an icon was a well-known concept in the ancient world. Um, oftentimes, it was, a, it was a physical representation of a spiritual being, a picture or a statue of a god that you'd put in a temple and worship. And there are tons of these things that have been dug up from all over the places, images of gods like Ashtoreth and Zeus and Marduk, images of gods all over the place, all different kinds of gods except for the one God that Paul is writing about here in Colossians. The Hebrew God, Yahweh, the Lord Almighty, whom the Jews believed was the one and only true God with a capital G. You couldn't make images of that God. It was forbidden because Yahweh knew that any time a human would try to make an image of a God, no matter how careful they were, the end result would be idolatry. They'd be worshiping something that wasn't truly God which, by the way, is the reason that things fall apart in this world. We worship the wrong things. We put our trust in our identity and our hope in things that aren't God. And eventually it crumbles right out from underneath us. So God told his people not to make any images, not even to try and make an image of him, of Yahweh. The closest thing that the Jews had to an icon or an idol was an ark, which was essentially a throne, but it was an empty throne on which was seated their God, their invisible God, who Paul here is now saying has an icon. In the way that Paul's using the word here, an icon's not referring to a picture or a statue or a, a likeness of something, but really he's talking about a revelation of its central essence, of what it truly is, the essential nature of something. That's another meaning of the word icon. And in the the sense, in this sense of the word, an icon isn't something that's less real than the thing it represents, like a photo is rest, less real than a person, but it's actually the heart of the thing that it represents. And the icon that Paul is talking about isn't some carved statue covered in gold and inset with precious stones, but it's a person. This icon is a person, a man named Jesus who was born and grew up and lived life and this icon is a person who Paul and some others are saying had died and yet was alive again. And not just alive like you and I are alive, but like fully, truly, 100% permanently alive. That's quite a way to introduce things. But let's go deeper because in the ancient world, these icons, these gods were always limited to a certain domain. And depending on what you needed, you would worship the god of the sea if you were going on a sea voyage, or the god of storms if you needed rain, or the goddess of fertility, or whatever you needed. These gods sort of stayed in their lanes, but not this god that Paul is introducing. We haven't even finished the first sentence of this passage. He's dynamiting this ancient concept of God left, right, and center. He says that this icon of the invisible god is also the firstborn over all creation. So what the heck does that mean? This little phrase here can be taken in a lot of wrong ways, and I think it has been throughout history. 
firstborn over all creation. So that means that Jesus uh, is like God's most beloved and important creation, right? Uh, no, heresy, right? No, that's not what firstborn over all creation means. The Son of God is not a created being. He's not some kind of a demigod, a, a quasi-god. And the Christian church has battled its way through these discussions for a long, long time. It's like a, a, a piece of fake news that just won't die. Paul is stressing Jesus' equality with God as well as his connection to creation. He's referring to the supremacy of Jesus over the entire created order. Jesus is not the first creature. He's not God's lieutenant. Everything was created through Jesus and for Jesus, and everything that exists is utterly dependent on him for its continued existence. So just listen to this string of descriptors that Paul puts together in, in these few verses. I'm just gonna run through these ones real quick. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. In him, all things were created. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him he's reconciling to himself all things. And this is the gospel that's been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. Paul is just hammering this point home here. Jesus is not like the God of the sea or the God of the harvest or the God of the butterflies or, or whatever God you're thinking of. He is the whole package. He's the hub of the wheel, the center of it all. And the spokes connecting all of creation are traced back to him. I mean, Ernest Shackleton did a fantastic job of keeping his crew together and helping them all stay alive. But Jesus holds all of creation together. There's simply no way around him. Everywhere you turn, there he is. The psalmist knew something of this when he wrote in Psalm 139. He said, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your right hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. And Paul in Colossians says, yeah, you know that God that you can't escape from? That's Jesus. He made it all. He keeps it all together. He's still doing it. In verse 18, we read that not only is he the firstborn over all creation, but he's also the firstborn from among the dead, which is a super creepy phrase if you think about it. There's also another paradox you can't have an image of an invisible God, and you certainly can't have a firstborn from among the dead. Birth and death are sort of opposite ends of the spectrum here, right? It's a contradiction in terms. So in just the space of a couple verses, it's like Paul has taken us to the top of the highest mountain, and he said, you see this? Well, Jesus is even higher than this, way higher. This is nothing to him. And in the blink of an eye, then, he's taken us to the bottom of the deepest trench in the Pacific Ocean. He says, you think this is deep? Well, Jesus has gone far, far deeper than this. If you were really keen on escaping God, you'd think that death might be the one place that you could get away to. But Paul is saying, nope, nope. He's been there, too. He didn't just die, but he passed through death into life, into full, unending life. He's the firstborn from among the dead. He's inviting us to follow him into life. 
And so that brings us to the question of what is the purpose? What is sort of the mission of God in all of this? Why is there all this fuss over Jesus and his nature and his life and his death? And verses 19 and 20 get us there. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I think if any truth is self-evident these days, it's that we live in a fractured and fragmented world, a world that's been broken into pieces. Christy, as, as she was praying up here about being broken people, that, is, that rings true to me. This is a world in need of reconciliation. So this is where we get to mission. This verse gets us to the heart of God. I think it gets us to the heart of mission as well. The sentence starts that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. All his fullness, so the very essence of his divine being. And then it ends with making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So when God reveals his fullness, reveals the, the entirety of who he is, his very nature to humanity, it looks like that. The cross. Peace for us at the cost of his blood. And in the middle of that cross is reconciliation, a bringing together of two parties which had been alienated from one another, which were enemies with one another. Notice for a minute, though, what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that God chose to reconcile to himself a bunch of disembodied spirits zapped off into heaven after we die. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that God chose to reconcile to himself a bunch of souls, whatever that means. It doesn't even say that God chose to reconcile to himself a bunch of people. What does it say? So through Jesus, God reconciles to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Jesus is supreme over all of creation. He's reconciling the whole shebang. All of creation has been broken through sin, so nothing less than all of creation is being redeemed and made whole and reconciled through the cross. So the scope of this is just mind-blowing. Yes, Jesus died for our sins. That's a baseline truth that we can cling to and that we can celebrate. But he didn't just die for our sins. He made peace through his blood shed on the cross, and he's reconciling everything to himself. So you and your personal salvation are a part of that, but they aren't the center of the story, not by a long shot. God is on the move, and, and his vision of salvation and redemption is much, much bigger than we can imagine. So that's why I think you guys care about and support and offer your time and your funds to organizations like the Lighthouse Mission, because God cares about the poor and the homeless, and he wants to see them reconciled and flourishing and made whole in all areas of their life. God created us as whole people. He cares about us as whole people. He redeems whole people, not just spirits, not just minds, but whole people. That's why you guys sent a team of 50-some people down to Mexico this summer, I think, to work with youth, to do marriage seminars, to build relationships with people and with churches there. It wasn't so that you could go in and try to save some disembodied generic souls for a disembodied generic heaven somewhere. No, God cares deeply about, remind me, San Felipe? 
Is that right, Patrick? Yeah. He cares deeply about that town and the people, and he cares about the mountains and the rivers there, and the scorpions, and everything else that he created. He wants to see all of it made whole and made right. God's passion for reconciliation is why Bellingham Covenant sent a team of 34 to Sweden, right about the same time you guys were in Mexico, to spend time meeting and working with refugees and immigrants there, learning from the Swedish Covenant Church how they care for people who have lost everything, including their countries. We met people from 11 different countries on that trip, we figured. It was awesome. Syria, Eritrea, Burundi, Somalia, Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq. God certainly cares about the eternal destiny of those people. Actually, lots of the people that we met from those countries were Christians already because Christianity has been in that part of the world for like a couple thousand years already. So their eternal destiny is more or less secure, I think, those guys. But even more than that, God cares about what's happening to those people now. He cares about their, that their lives have been torn apart by war and conflict and poverty. He cares how they're getting along in Sweden, whether they're flourishing there or not. And he cares how us Americans, how we relate to them and view people from those parts of the world. Are we closed off to them? Are we wary and distrustful? Or do we see them as fellow image bearers of a good and gracious God? So Jesus did some serious work in, in our hearts, in the hearts of the team that went there. And it's because he's concerned about reconciliation and wholeness. And that's the exciting part in all of this, is that we don't just get to sit here and watch God do all of this and give him a golf clap afterwards. Great job. No, we are called to get in there and to take part in this reconciliation ourselves. We have been reconciled and we become reconcilers. Jesus is the head of his body, the church, this passage said. And a body goes where the head tells it to go. We follow where he leads. And where he leads is reconciliation. Another of Paul's letters, 2 Corinthians, says it very clearly in chapter 5. It says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Wow. God is appealing to the world through us. Be reconciled. Be reconciled. Be reconciled to me. When it comes to Bible passages about mission, we often want a directive. We want someone to tell us what to do, which is why we camp out in the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, which is a nice, clear command. But always, always, whatever is commanded in Scripture, whatever we follow, needs to be based on on something. We can't truly follow a command like the Great Commission until we know who it is that commands us and who we are in light of that. And that's what Paul's trying to get us to see in this Colossians passage, I think. There's going to be plenty of time for action and for doing and accomplishing things, but first we need to sit and stop and just revel in the knowledge that the heart of God the Creator is fully revealed in the cross. Consider what kind of God you follow. He is like no other. We worship a God who doesn't just want to save a bunch of souls, but who's in the process of renewing all of creation. We worship a God who gave everything, even his very life, to make peace. This is our exalted head, Jesus. 
So let's follow where he leads. I would ask all of you, you know, whatever else you do this evening, to dwell on the truth of this passage from Colossians. Rejoice that this is God's heart, not just for you, but for all of creation. And then listen for that voice that calls you to join in that work in your own unique way, in a way that honors how God made you and gifted you, the passions that he's put into you and what your journey with him has been so far, and then follow. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, these words are too wonderful for us to comprehend that you bring reconciliation, that you bring wholeness to us as broken people and to this broken world, to all that you have made, you are making right again. And that we get to join in on that, not just to be carried along by it, but to be agents of it to be reconcilers who have been reconciled. Would you help us, God, tonight to just soak in that, to understand in some way what that means for us? And then would you give us ears to hear your voice calling us into that work uh, that you have set, set aside for us? Give us strength and give us courage. Give us wisdom. Give us ears to hear your voice. We ask all of this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.